HRN listeners. As we celebrate our 15th year, we are deepening our commitment to giving voice to the next generation of food system storytellers, and we need your help. Our internship and fellowship programs help activate new possibilities for underrepresented and underestimated young people through experiential journalism, audio engineering, and production training. Through these unique programs, HRN helps food equity stewards build essential workforce readiness skills that expand their potential and foster economic mobility. Please consider supporting these critical programs. And with a minimum donation, you can be entered to win a dinner for two at an amazing restaurant in one of eight cities and tickets to a concert at a great venue in one of those cities. We have incredible partners across the country who have donated as they also share our passion for helping to educate the next generation of food system storytellers. Check out heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. That's heritageradionetwork.org 15 to donate and enter to win today. And make sure you donate before March 31st. Thank you. This is Chef Emily Peterson, host of Sharp and Hot. You're listening to Heritage Radio Network, broadcasting live from Bushwick, Brooklyn. If you like this program, visit heritageradionetwork.org for thousands more. Welcome to Japan Eats. I'm your host, Akiko Katayama, a food writer and a director of the New York Japanese Culinary Academy, which promotes a deep understanding of Japanese cuisine in America. We are broadcasting live from a studio at Roberta's in Bushwick, Brooklyn. This show is all about Japanese food and food culture. We see sushi at every deli and supermarket, but what is beyond sushi? We hear dashi, ramen, yuzakaya, but what exactly are they? Japanese food is still a mystery for many people, and I will try to demystify it in this program with my cool guests. And my guest today is Wiley Dufresne, who is the former chef owner of the legendary New American restaurant, WD50, and Alder in New York City. And he's known as one of the most innovative chefs in the world. Hello, Wiley. Welcome to the show. Hello. I'm pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me. So um, I had many wonderful dinners at WD-50 and Alder, but unfortunately, due to uh, real estate issues, WD-50 closed in November last year after 11 years of successful operation and Alder in August. So what are you working on right now? Uh, we're going to be opening a new restaurant down in the financial district of Manhattan in the new year. Okay. So what's the concept, if you can share? Uh, I cannot share okay. the concept with you. Uh, no, we're still developing it. Uh, I'm not trying to be cagey, but uh, there's still a, a ways away. It's under construction. It's in a hotel mm-hmm. um, down in the financial district on William Street. Um, but we're very excited, and we're, we're looking forward to it. But we're still, because there's quite some time, and it's still really under construction, we're, we're playing with different ideas and thinking about it and trying mm. to uh, come up with, hopefully, an exciting concept. Great. Yeah, because uh, I heard other like Keith McNally, Tom Colicchio, April Rubio, those like great chefs opening new restaurants in the area too. So that's going to be great. Yeah, I mean, we're not far from any of those people, and we feel very excited and fortunate to have, um, you know, to be in, in such good company. There's a lot of great chefs going down there. Mm. Uh, Jean George's mar- new market is going up right near us, and there's right. a lot of um, exciting things happening down there. So we're really excited to be a part of that neighborhood and, and the, the goings on down there. Right. I can't wait. 
Nor can I. <laughs> right. So, um, so why and how did you get into the restaurant business? Uh, you know, I've been in the restaurant business since I was a little kid. I started working at 11 uh, oh. in restaurants. My, my father has been in the food service my whole life. So, um, you know, my, summer, my summers were spent with my dad, and that usually meant uh, being involved in food service in some capacity. And eventually it just became uh, a good fit for me. Mm, right. And I read a couple articles about, you know, how you thought about the food business. And you, you thought it was like a sports, team sport? Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I I believe that many of the life lessons that you can can find in in team sports, you can find in restaurants. Um, they are very similar, sort of the the whole team mentality, the, the the way a team works, the way a restaurant kitchen works. There's a lot of overlap, and you know, if I could have been a professional athlete, I would have, but you know, that was never never really an option. So discovering that what I loved about sports could be found in the kitchen was. Uh, it sort of sucked me in rather rather quickly to, mm. to the kitchen. Okay, right. that's interesting. I didn't realize how similar they are. Uh, yeah, there's there's there absolutely are a lot of, of overlaps. You know, the first half of the day is spent uh, in the kitchen doing prep. That's like practice. The evening is the dinner service. That's like the game. There are different role players. You have a coach. You have a chef. You have a captain. You have a sous chef. You have um, all, it's a lot of the same infrastructure and, and just a lot of the same life lessons. There's there's you know you make you miss a layup or you strike out, but you're going to get to uh, be up again or take another layup. You you, you make a mistake you overcook a piece of fish or you 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 oversalt this or that you have a chance all night long to to fix those mistakes um it's just a very similar environment mm. um you wake up and your back hurts and your hand hurt, hands hurts <laughs> and uh you know there's just a lot of of, of the similar the, the similarities just are unbelievable and 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 the older i get the more i sort of realize that there were even ones i didn't realize when i was younger and so um, you know, again, I, I, I wasn't ever going to play professional sports, unfortunately, mm. because I'm just not that talented. But but um, discovering uh, kitchen life has been has been very satisfying. Mm, interesting. I used to play basketball very intensely when I was very young, young but it's kind of never ending challenges. And every day there's ne- there is no end. And uh, well, there's again, there's, there's a lot of similar things to that in life and right. life in the restaurants. Mm-hmm. Okay, and uh, you worked for uh, the great French chef John George von, von Richten, and uh, I heard he's your mentor. So, what did you learn from him? You know, I learned a lot of things from John George, and I feel very fortunate to have spent as many years working for him as I did, and then for him to be my partner at WD Fifty. You mm-hmm. know, he was. He uh, was was one of the owners and my partner, and I'm I, I feel fortunate to to call you know him and Phil Suarez the the two gentlemen behind WD50 really uh, as my as my friends. Um, but John George taught me a lot. Uh, you know, I, I think what I really respect is his push for simplicity. You know, John George was always looking to take things off the plate, mm. uh, particularly at a time when I think a lot of chefs were putting more and more things on a plate. Mm. Um, but as he noted, you know, it's easy to hide, and and what he wanted to do was not hide. And and so the more things you took away, the better the things that you left on the plate had to be. And I really respected that. I mean, I think that's also a very Japanese notion right. of stripping away, stripping away things down to their very, mm-hmm. their very essence. Right, um, reduction versus addition. Correct. In French cuisine. Correct. And John George was 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 incredible at that, and I learned a lot from him. Um, simplicity, um, you know, balance. His food is very balanced. He has a very. I think he's one of the the first chefs in America to really understand the role 
role of acidity and how acidity can help mm. really um, balance dish or, or, or wake up your palate and, and how the role that it plays on a plate. And he really um, has brought – been responsible for a lot of chefs sort of understanding that. Uh, you know, and then of course his use of the way he lightened up classic French food with his, ju- you know, his juices and his flavored oils mm-hmm. and things like that, and taking out the heavy stocks and butters and creams, and I just think it was all really interesting to me. Mm. You know? Right, his food is always kind of lighter and cleaner. So. Very, very clean, very light. Um, you know, I, I, I really admire him sort of across the board. He's been an incredible inspiration, you know, as a chef, but he's also an amazing businessman. I think that you know you can't. Don't ever underestimate John George. You know, he is really uh, an incredible force and, and just unbelievable energy, too. I mean, mm-hmm. I see I feel old when I see him because he's <laughs> always running around and never standing still. And he's you know, I just I take my hat off to him. He's very impressive. Mm-hmm. I, I think he's he has over 25 restaurants or something like incredible number. Yeah. And I, but I, I mean, his energy, you know, if when I ha- if I were lucky, I'd probably be sitting down in a chair <laughs> and he's running around. And I just think it's it's amazing, you know, right. at, at at that volume. At that success level, that he just keeps going and going, it's really, really incredible. Mm. Okay, and uh, you're often called a modernist chef or molecular gastronomist, and your food is known for being super creative. So, for instance, one of the, your signature dishes I liked was uh, everything bagel, smoked salmon, threads, crispy cream cheese, and here the bagel was actually bagel flavored ice cream and the salmon was dried threads of salmon and you put them all together in your mouth, then the flavors and textures evoked the moment of eating bagel and lox. So it was a great surprise when I tasted it. And were you always an innovative thinker since you were very young? And, you know, where did your scientific analytical curiosity come from? I mean, I've always been very curious. Uh, and I think that probably has to be attributed to my parents who encouraged that curiosity and encouraged me to ask a lot of questions. So um, so I so I have. So I did. And I continue to ask a lot of questions be, because I think not only understanding, you know, how to cook, but why to cook is very important. And that's sort of where it all stemmed from. You know, classical training for a cook is mostly just about showing you how to do things. Mm. But but ha- did always have an explanation as to why you know mm. what's happening to your food when you cook it and 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 understanding the variables of, of cooking and, and understanding how small changes can affect the outcome of what you do led us to sort of this scientific approach or understanding that cooking is in fact a science um, you know it's it's you know it's got a little bit of biology a little bit of physics but mostly it's chemistry and and and, and realizing that we don't know a lot about chemistry but that if we began to sort of try to understand a little bit about that science or talk to other people that that knew or did understand food science that we could actually make uh, better decisions. You know, there's never going to be a right way or a wrong way mm. to, to poach an egg, but, but there'll be a more or less informed way. If you understand the variables, then you know how raising the temperature or cooking it for longer or less time will affect the outcome. And um, that's going to always allow people to make, to make better decisions because mm. the more information you have, the better the decisions you can make. And, and certainly with regards to cooking, that has allowed us to, to, to become better cooks. Mm. Right. I have an impression that your food um, almost kind of uh, intensify flavors. And I was wondering always that how do you develop a recipe? I mean, based on that scientific you know, knowledge, you can concentrate flavors. But um, what's your thought process? Like, do you start with an ingredient or an existing food to modify or... 
What is that? Uh, yes, all of those things. Okay. Um, sometimes it's a season. Sometimes it's an ingredient. Sometimes it's a technique. Sometimes, uh, you know, uh, again, we're having a seasonal change and, and uh, corn is coming into season or uh, black bass is coming going out of season or both are happening. And so, uh, you know, it, it. I believe in creating an environment where ideas are sort of always happening, mm-hmm. where there's always an opportunity to say, hey, I have an idea. And so uh, I, I want the kitchen to be collaborative. I want it to be a group effort. It's never just one person saying, "Okay, we're going today. We're going to do this tomorrow. We're going to do that." You know, I want to surround myself with people that are curious, with people that are interested, and people that um, want to help me ask questions and understand things. And so, you know, it could start in the pastry department. It could start in the savory department. It could start with me. It could start with a line cook. It could sort of start anywhere. Mm-hmm. Um, so it may sound a little haphazard our approach, but I, I, I don't feel like it is. Our our approach is is. Um, it, but it, it's a, it's about sort of bouncing the ball around the room and asking a bunch of different people what they think. And whoever throws the ball first is is the person that throws the ball first. Mm. It's not um, – sometimes it is my, me saying, guys, we have to change something. Sometimes it's one of my cooks saying, hey, you know, chef, I have an idea. Let's try this. And there's there's no wrong way to get started. Mm, okay. So it's another team sport element. It is. It is very much a, a, a team sport. But, you know – it could be you were out to dinner last night and you had an idea or you were at the movies and you had an idea or you're reading a book and you had an idea and mm. you never know where inspiration's going to come from i mean you can you can search for it but you never know when 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 it's going to come to you you have to be ready for when it comes to you mm. you know which is why i always carry a notebook uh, uh, in case there's a, a in, in case something <laughs> comes up right. um and, and I try to encourage my staff uh, along the same lines. Be prepared. Be ready for when something happens because you, you, you don't always know. Sometimes you wake up and you're like, I had a crazy dream last night about uh, udon. And there you go. <laughs> um, it's possible. Right. You know? Or the way the light's coming through the window it might make you think, oh, I could put the food on the plate this way or that way. I mean, there's mm-hmm. so many different opportunities to be inspired or mm-hmm. ways in which the world around you can help drive your creative process. And right. so I think it's important that that we be aware of that. Mm. So um, in terms of a science side, do you experiment altogether? You know, and then the entire team do some experiments too? Well, you know, everybody can't be experimenting all the time because we do have to get ready for dinner and we do have to serve you. <laughs> right. um, so sometimes we're able to have certain people who are just doing research and development. But mm. uh, other times, you know, we, we try to make sure that everybody can find a little bit of time in their day to contribute to the process. Mm. But, I mean, oftentimes, you know, once we get an idea and in our head or once we try to do something and we, we can't make it work, um, you know, we had to make salmon, uh, I mean, bagel ice cream several times to get that dish right. We had to figure out how to cook those salmon threads to get them mm. exactly the way we wanted. And, some, and oftentimes that experimentation will be on my shoulders or the chef de cuisine's shoulders or a sous chef. Um, because, you know, every like again, everybody can't be working on uh, – mm on ideas all the time. But right. but I, I like for people to take that home with them too, you know, get home, read a book, read a cookbook, have some thoughts, if you want, you know. Mm, okay. And uh, I have another impression. Your food has uh, almost always a taste memory. Is that something you think of? Um, I wouldn't say it always has a taste memory, but that is one of the things that we think about is mm. um, using uh, memories, using humor, using cultural references. Mm. Um 
you know, uh, again, that dish, like you said, that's that that dish, that everything bagel with salmon threads, uh, crispy cream cheese, and and pickled red onions was really a classic New York mm. bagel and lox. Um, the eggs Benedict is something that you know was a dish of ours that got a lot of attention over the years, and we we're simply trading on the idea of eggs Benedict, which mm-hmm. is something that a lot of people have a, a taste memory for, or miso soup, or any of the other number of other dishes that we we had some you know a, a played with. And so some, oftentimes we will try to take things that people are familiar with and, and play with it and have mm. some fun with it. Right. Okay. And uh, you studied a philosophy at college. So what is your philosophy in the kitchen? Uh, again, I think it's about curiosity. It's mm. about a, a, a willingness to ask questions. And those the, uh, that can be very loosely defined, how, how you ask questions, what kind of questions you ask. Um, are not that always that important to me. Just the fact that you're asking questions, that you're thinking, that you're um, being curious. I mean, it, it, at the end of the day, when people say, what was it like working at WD-50 or what was it like working at Alder? All I ever want for people to say is, it made me think. Mm. What that means, I don't even really care necessarily what direction the specifics of that, but just that it made them think. I want people to think about what they're doing because I think that when people think about what they're doing, ultimately they do it better. Mm. And and that's all I want is, is, is for myself to get better, for my team to get better so that we can make better food for the customers. You know, mm. I, and, and I think that has to come from some sort of self-analysis, some paying attention to what you're doing and, and thinking about it. Mm. So independent thinkers... I want people to think, um, you know, for their own benefit, but ultimately for the customer's benefit as well. Mm, right. And eventually, WD-50 became a kind of a graduate school for talented chefs, and uh, such as Sam Mason, Alex Stubach, and Mal- uh, Mario Cabone, and Christina Tosia. Those people are like those people who was incubated. I'm, you know, those are all great, great chefs in this city that are contributing to the landscape uh, in wonderful ways. And I, I'm thrilled that, that the, to have had the opportunity to work with those people and that they passed through our kitchens. And, you know, they left a big imprint in our, in, in our space. And I hope that we somehow uh, left our fingerprints with them and somehow that, you know, they think about us occasionally and, and when they do the great things that they do. And I hope that someday they can, each of them can give me a job right. because I'm going to need it. Right. <laughs> well, it's int- very inspiring to me because it sounds like uh, it's the complete opposite of traditional Japanese kitchen because in Japanese kitchen where you are supposed to learn silently from the chefs by watching your boss. So that's very interesting. Uh, I mean, I never, I, I, I would love to have worked, uh, or, or, or still possibly work in a Japanese a kitchen, but I've never had, uh, I've never been that fortunate. Um, so I don't really know the the traditional Japanese model for educating a cook. I can't really speak mm. to that. But you know, like uh, Jiro's uh, dream, dream of sushi, that kind of like you are supposed to work for the boss for years and years, and then kind of steal the techniques silently. And then eventually your boss is expecting you to be successful by learning that way. So the brainstorming ideas, that's pretty interesting and refreshing. Uh, again, I mean, that's that's an interesting story, you know, Jiro. And I've certainly seen the movie more than once. Yeah. But uh, I don't, you know, I don't know much about that, that approach. Um, and, and, you know, it's not for me, I would say. Right. I, I like the idea of, of there being a back and forth. Mm-hmm. Um, I like the idea that 
not only could they learn from me, but that I could learn from them. Mm-hmm. And that, it, that that educational process is a two-way street, not a one-way street. Mm-hmm. Um, well, I think actually a Kyoto, very traditional kaiseki restaurant, started mm-hmm. to open the doors and then invite foreign chefs and then exchange ideas and do some collaborative work. So... Maybe that's uh, interesting. Uh, yeah, I mean, movement. maybe we have. I mean, you know, the Japanese chefs have be, have not uh, historically been that forthcoming with some of their great techniques, right. and <laughs> uh, you know, and but but that's okay. You know, we're, we've been lucky to be able to learn from them, and mm. and and whatever information they are willing to part with, we're grateful for it because it's an amazing culture, mm. um, some amazing techniques, amazing ingredients, and I, I I certainly am a big fan of the Japanese approach to cooking. Mm. Okay, and uh, speaking of Japanese, um, in 2004, I interviewed you for an article about dashi, uh, which is cooking stock in Japan, usually made with dried bonito and a kombu, and sometimes dried fish. And that was when only a few non-Japanese chefs knew about dashi. So how did you start using dashi? I mean, my the first time I made dashi was at 71 Clinton Fresh Food, and mm. that probably... Uh, that probably was in around 2000. Mm-hmm. Before you opened like the WD-50. Before opened WD-50. Um, and I was just blown away by it. I mean, I I don't, I'm not a big fan of the traditional French uh, fish stock. Mm-hmm. Um, like the fumé, the classic fumé. I, uh, I find Japanese dashi to be a wonderful alternative, mm-hmm. uh, to be very light, to be very clean. Um, I love... The smoky notes that mm, the bonito. bonito flakes, uh, bonito, mm-hmm. the fish um, add to the stock, and I and for me it's one of the one of the go to. Um, it's a base in, in, in our restaurants. Um, you know, we use dashi in so many things, and I think it's a wonderful uh, ingredient, a wonderful technique, and it, it, it it's a a, a great uh, umami. Uh, opportunity, mm-hmm. in, you know, for bringing some umami into your food, but it's also a, it, it adds a great sort of under some of those under notes that you don't always know that's there, but you know there's something there, mm. and and that can be dashi, and I just love what dashi brings to the party. Mm. Okay, um, all right, and uh, so the you know the way dashi uh, Japanese style bonito takes a year to make, and. Uh, Kombu, I mean, it takes a year. I mean, like six months, maybe you can your harvesting and drying. So for that time, it's once you're, you're in the kitchen, you can make dashi quickly too, right? You can make dashi pretty quickly. Right? Yeah. So the, for fish stock, you have to cook for hours to make a guan. Uh, I mean, fish stock doesn't cook that long. Yeah. I mean, you certainly can't make it as fast as you can make dashi. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, I mean, you can buy dashi powder in the in the right. in, in the supermarket. <laughs> you can have dashi in about two seconds. Right. But uh, yeah, I'm not necessarily. So <laughs> I'm not. I don't know if there's a good version of that. I'm not, and I'm not recommending that. But I, I, I do think that you know dashi is something that you find mm-hmm. every household in Japan making. So it's right. not it's not burdensome at all. It's very manageable. Mm-hmm. Right. Okay, so uh, let's take a quick break here, and uh, when we come back, we'll talk about why these are experiencing in Japan. So please stay with us.
I'm Liz Smith, audio engineer for Heritage Radio Network. Personally, I think I have the coolest job in the world because every day I come into work and record shows ranging from homebrewing to horticulture, from lifestyle tips and tricks to culinary history. Needless to say, I've become a stellar dinner guest. And you know, my job wouldn't be possible without support from listeners like you. If Heritage Radio Network shows accompany you on your way to work, on your way home from work, while you're cleaning the apartment, or, or maybe you just love what you hear, you should consider donating. Check out our brand new beautiful website at heritageradionetwork.org and notice the little beating donate heart up in the top right corner. Your support will go a long way. Thanks for listening. Welcome back. You're listening to Japan Eats, broadcasting live from our studio in Bushwick, Brooklyn. I'm your host, Akiko Katayama, and my guest today is Wiley Dufresne, who is the former chef-owner of the legendary new American restaurant, WD50, an elder in New York City. So, um, what is your recipe for dashi, if you can share it with our uh, listeners? Um, you know, our, there's nothing particularly... Uh Unusual about our recipe for dashi, except at the very end. But we use Murata-san's recipe. You know, mm-hmm. we Murata. follow we follow his his mm-hmm. his recipe. Right. So Chef Murata is uh, one of the most uh, important Kyoto Kaisei kitchens, and uh, yeah, he's kind of a deep figure of Japanese Kaiseki. So and he has a book. And he has lots of books, but mm-hmm. he certainly in in his Kaiseki book he mm-hmm. has a. Uh, he dedicates a whole page to 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 dashi, and you know basically we use that approach, you know very briefly. It's wiping wiping the the kombu, the kombu off with a damp cloth, uh, covering you know adding the water and the and the kombu together, bringing it up to about 180 degrees. Uh, no, I mean 100, and um, bringing it up to 140 degrees mm. for about an hour. Removing the kombu, which can be used for other things at mm-hmm. that point, then bringing the water uh, just uh, below the boil to about 180, adding the bonito flakes. Okay, it's at that point that we we dip, we go in different directions. Mm. I think he leaves his bonito flakes in for about 10 seconds, which mm-hmm. is sort of typical of a lot of right. Japanese chefs. But we leave our bonito flakes in up to 10 minutes. Wow, to concentrate the flavor, uh, to change it a little bit, and and I realize that that's probably upsetting to some Japanese, <laughs> and I've I've had uh, some people come to. To, uh, actual Japanese customers come to W50 and say that this is not, you know, miso. Su- <laughs> that my miso soup was incorrect because of the pronounced uh, mm. bonito flavor. Um, mm. But I think that's okay. I think that as long as you're respecting the ingredients and understanding what you're doing and why you're doing it, it's okay. I mean, we still are making dashi. We're still making delicious dashi. We're still trying to get our hands on the best kombu and the best bonito. Mm-hmm. Um, but we like it left in there a little bit longer. Um, and we're not trying to be disrespectful. We mm-hmm. just are, are like the way it's being used. And we're often using it in a different way. Uh, we're not using – typically we don't use Japanese ingredients in Japanese ways because we're not making Japanese food. We're not a Japanese restaurant. We're trying to understand those those techniques, those flavors, those ingredients and try to figure out our own ways to use them. And, mm-hmm. and again, it was – 
not to be disrespectful. Right. On the contrary, mm-hmm. we were trying to be very respectful, but we just found that we liked the end result with the Bonito Flakes mm-hmm. in there longer. And, right. and that dashi um, was, for our applications, mm-hmm. really spot on. And Murata's recipe is is hard to beat, I think. Right. Well, it sounds like I think you are expanding the possibility of dashi. And uh, I remember Mr. Murata once said, you know, the tradition has to evolve. So it's a good progress. For I mean, I hope so. I, I, <laughs> I, he's never been to my restaurant or tried my dashi, and I, I'm probably grateful that he hasn't because okay. he would probably find something wrong with it. But, mm-hmm. um, you know, again, it's, it's with great, the utmost respect to Murata-san that we, we, we started with his recipe and, and really didn't deviate much. Mm. Um, we really just simply left those flakes in a bit more. Right. Okay, so maybe you can invite him to his uh, your new restaurant. I would love to have him there. I mean, I've had the I've had the good fortune of meeting him once, um, actually not in Japan but in Spain, um, and uh, he was he was very nice. Right. I'd love to go to one of his restaurants. Okay, and uh, how do you use uh, your dashi? Any examples? Uh, again, we've experimented with different flavors. We've done things like making cinnamon flavored dashi, or ah. um, uh, grapefruit and pine flavored dashi, uh, carrot dashi, ah. uh, roasted potato dashi. We've used it in soups. We've used it in sauces. We've used it to glazed vegetables. Uh, like I said, it's often the the backbone of of mm. some of the some of the dishes. Mm. Um, we've made actual miso soup. Um, at W fifty as well, but we've used it in quite a bit. It's it's almost like I said. There's always dashi in the restaurant. Okay, right. Because I, uh, the, you know, the, my interview in two thousand four, there's a dish, uh, the skate mustard flavored noodles, fried potato boyan, and you call it a drinking fried potato. So maybe you can explain what it was. Well, that was that was basically trying to make. Uh, we wanted it to be like you're drinking French fries almost. Right. Um, the flavor of French fries, and we just took. Potato skins, um, we peeled a lot of potatoes and we peeled, we took all the skins and we saved them, we soaked them and rinsed them and then we fried them and then we, we dropped them into dashi mm. overnight so that when you strained it out, you had a little tiny bit of that smoky thing from the dashi. But when you heated it up, you really, it tasted mm. almost like French fries yeah. and it was uh, v- really very interesting. And then we used the actual potatoes themselves to turn them into noodles. So mm. we, 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 we put them on a Japanese mandolin, um, <laughs> and they became long like noodles, and we flavored them with mustard. Um, so you were, you were having a, like a mustard noodle in a, in a, in a French fry dashi. Mm. Um, and again, we, we've, we've gone on to make all sorts of other flavors from cinnamon to carrot, like I said, grapefruit. And mm. it's been... Um, it, again, I'm, I'm a fan. Clearly, I'm a fan. How do you do that with cinnamon? You just infuse some cinnamon sticks okay. into into the dashi. That was something we came up with for David Chang. He was coming for dinner one night, and we had to make something new for him. <laughs> and so we, we made cinnamon dashi, and I think he liked it. Mm, maybe I should try tonight. <laughs> <laughs> it's really nice. It's really nice. Okay. And uh, so um, you use dashi in non-fish dishes, too. So does dashi work well with the meat as well? I think it does absolutely. Like mm-hmm. I said, we use we've used it in sauces and in soups uh, that are not specifically you know with seafood or or vegetarian. Mm. I mean, dashi's not vegetarian um, uh, unless you make a kombu dashi. But uh, we yes, I think dashi can be used on all sorts of things. I think mm-hmm. again, whether you're glazing vegetables or using it in a sauce for for a piece of pork or all, all sorts of things. I mean, that smokiness certainly plays well with meats. There's no there's no denying that. Mm, so that's the key, the bonito smokiness. That's the kind of connecting point. I think I think when you when you want to think about where to go with dashi, yes, mm. absolutely. 
Okay. And、uh, what are your favorite Japanese ingredients other than dashi? I mean, I have a long list here. Okay.、Uh, <laughs> I don't have necessarily a favorite ingredient, but,、uh, you know, I've. Over the years, I've come to love things like, you know, togarashi,、um, furikake,、uh, shio kombu,、mm-hmm. kuro edamame.、Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, kuro edamame, I think it's interesting because it's not known. And、uh, it's basically,、uh, it's, it's really region specific and it's from Tamba, typically, and it's near Kyoto. And they're harvested before they ripen and、uh, they have a sweeter than regular edamame and have richer flavor. So, and they're In the market, only in the fall. So it's very hard to get. I and mean, I'm surprised that you know that. It is very hard to get,、uh, but it's wonderful. It has almost, it tastes very corn like to me. Like you get a nuttiness that,、mm. that makes the edamame feel almost like corn.、Mm. And it's a much deeper flavor than the, the typical edamame that everybody knows.、There's, to me, it has much more of a characteristic.、Mm. Um, it is more expensive、uh, and it is seasonal. I mean, you can get them frozen, which edamame is one of the. One of the vegetables or ingredient products that doesn't really isn't negatively affected by being frozen. I think frozen edamame are、mm. just as good. In fact, we've tasted them side by side blind <laughs> against people who are unable to tell the difference. Okay. But kuro edamame are wonderful.、Mm. Really good. Okay. So, any other something like you want to specific、uh, ingredients? I mean, you talked about the salmon threads. That, that's an old furikake recipe that we.、Uh. We modified for ourselves.、Mm, and、right. so, again, that's another wonderful ingredient. Yeah. So, for listeners who don't know anything about the frikake, frikake is basically、uh, kind of, you know, like powdered form of a small, you know, pieces of a seaweed, nori, sesame, like different kinds of like salty items. Crunchy. It's like、And、a condiment that you can sprinkle on other things. Right. I mean, typically in Japan, like,、uh, you know, you、uh, put on top of、uh, white rice, but then obviously you did something very different.、Uh, well, we, again, we came across an old recipe for making furikake out of salmon. So、mm-hmm. um, we made salmon furikake and then we smoked it.、Mm-hmm. So we made smoked salmon furikake and then we realized that it would be wonderful, a wonderful application in that dish.、Um, But we used that furikake in a number of.、Uh, we, we played around with it、mm-hmm. on other things.、Um, it was one of Danny Bowen's favorite、uh, okay. ingredients. <laughs> When he opened up Mission Chinese, we gave him a bunch of it.、Uh, okay.、Um, and he loved putting it on stuff. And it's, it's I mean, again, it was, it was a very interesting thing for us to do and to make it our own. I mean, we, we did find an old Japanese recipe for it、mm. and then just change it a little bit by, by smoking the salmon once we were done. Um, but it's a, it's a wonderful technique. And I think, again, furikake can be used in any. In a, it, it, it isn't just、uh, salmon, it could be a lot of different things. I mean, one of the other ingredients that you often find in furikake that I love is arare. I think、mm-hmm. arare is a wonderful ingredient. Right, arare is like a, a puffed rice. Yeah, it's like a、right. little tiny puffed rice ball、mm-hmm. that's very crunchy、mm-hmm. and、um, very delicious. A, a nice way of adding texture、uh, to, to dishes. Um, sake kazu, I'm a huge fan of、mm-hmm. sake kazu, which are sake leaves, which is, you know, in the sake making process, the, the byproduct.、Uh, it's almost like a, a, a bit of a paste,、mm-hmm. and it's very, got a rich, yeasty flavor that we've made into soup, we've made into pasta. We've, again, we've, you, we've used it maybe not in the exact way that would be typical in a Japanese right, kitchen. Right, because it's normally used for、uh, like a marinade or, you know, pickles for the curate. 
Yeah, but it's great as a soup. It, it makes an amazing pasta. You know, mm. Mario Carbone had an idea for making when he worked for me for turning it into a noodle, and so that's <laughs> what we did. We made yeah. uh, sake Lee's, uh pasta, and it was wonderful. Mm, that must wonderful, be. yeah, yeah, it was great. Um, you know, udon, one of my favorites. Uh, shishito think, peppers, yeah, another udon, one. The, speaking of udon, you used to make udon. I heard at WD fifty. We did make udon mm. the old fashioned way, stomping on it with your feet. <laughs> Nobody does it <laughs> nowadays. Oh, that's amazing. Yeah. Wow. So you just make the dough, and then, then you know you cover it and then the stomp on it. Well, again, we came across some old recipes. We we're doing mm. our research on how they make udon, and it turns out that you know typically uh, the the housewives that would make the udon would would walk on it, would right. walk on the dough because it's a very strong uh, flour. It's a hard dough. It's a firm dough. I should. Right. Say. Right. And so uh, we thought, okay, well, we couldn't we couldn't work it in the mixer, so that's <laughs> what we did: is we put it in two different bags, and we would walk on it every day. <laughs> we had guys, uh, you know, walking on the udon, and it was great. It oh, was wonderful, wow. That's impressive. Okay, and uh, so, like you know, you always uh, your Japanese ingredients are very creative ways. But uh, another example I found that uh, you made a miso soup and the sesame noodles. Which is a kind of a magical dish because you are asked to make sesame noodles in your own bowl. But um, so for this dish, you made a traditional miso soup and clarified it. So why and how did you do that? Why did we clarify it? Mm-hmm. Because uh, in this particular dish, we didn't want... I mean, miso soup obviously is dashi, which is typically clear. But then you whisk in some mm-hmm. uh, some miso paste. Right. Um, and then, you know, a lot of times your bowl of miso will arrive and it will be clear. But as soon as you stir it up, right. it gets cloudy again. And it's wonderful and it's beautiful and it's rich and delicious. But we thought in this particular instance, let's get all that flavor in there. And then let's 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 take a, a, a European approach to it and clarify it and serve mm-hmm. it as a, as a broth or a consomme. Because mm-hmm. um, again, we just wanted to have some fun. We, there was nothing wrong with miso soup. We didn't think it needed that, <laughs> but we were just trying to be be playful and have some fun. And uh, we we were still honoring the dish. We were still trying to make a, tra- mm-hmm. a delicious miso soup. Right. Well, I was curious though because I heard some uh, you know non Japanese people can't get a little feeling weird about the cloudiness so if you can clarify it and then make a tasty soup i i think a lot of people should try that i mean it was, i thought it was delicious <laughs> and i didn't mind that it wasn't cloudy but i don't mind when it is cloudy it doesn't bother me right. um but we had all the other elements you know we had some shiitake we had some scallions and then we had some tofu mm. in the form of a noodle made of, of tofu and sesame right okay so um also, I heard that uh, you also uh, make a Japanese-style pickles called the tsukemono. And tsukemono is different from Western pickles because they're made with salt, miso, soy sauce, or rice bran instead of vinegar, sugar, and herbs. So do you make the traditional Japanese-style tsukemono or you have you came up with something unique based on it? Like I always do. No, in fact, we we stayed somewhat traditional. But you know, I, f- I found again in 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 my I'm a big fan of cookbooks, and I have a lot of cookbooks. And I heard I, you have like I, thousands. I have a lot. <laughs> I have a lot. I have around two thousand. Oh um, wow. And, uh, you know, uh, several of them, lots of them in, are Japanese books. Many of them I can't read because they're mm. in Japanese. <laughs> but I did, I did find some, some books on uh, – I'm not exactly sure how to pronounce it. Is it Skimono? Sk- sk- Skimono, yeah. Mm-hmm. And uh, th- my favorite one that I found was actually just uh, – it was very simple. It was garlic mm. and honey. Mm. And they took garlic and they just packed it in honey and left it there. For several months, mm. 
Mm. Um, and so we tried that and that is now, well, I don't have a restaurant right now, but it was an ingredient that was always at both restaurants all the time. Mm. We just called it pickled garlic and Mm. we would leave the garlic in the honey. We also experimented with maple syrup. Um, a very American or North American um, ingredient uh, of of packing the the garlic in that and leaving it there. And it's a wonderful ingredient. And that that sugar and all that time in the sugar really softens Mm. the garlic in a wonderful way. Now, it's not a pickle in a traditional sense, but I thought it was really interesting to find garlic packed in honey. Mm. And it's that we you can use that honey in other things. We would use that in sauces or in soups. But we'd also would use the the garlic itself, and it's mm-hmm. it's wonderful, and it's very easy to do. It, it, you just have to have the time and the space because you have to wait. <laughs> I mean, you can wait. Uh, you can't wait less than a month, but if you can wait up to three, you get a magical ingredient. Mm, so because uh, the sharpness of garlic, it's gone probably, and then the whole mild and the good stuff mummy with. It's it's absolutely fantastic. I mean, Mm. honey garlic is one of my favorites. And again, it was found in an old book about Japanese pickles. Okay. Well, I didn't know that. So maybe I should uh, create a jar. (laughs) (laughs) Okay. And uh, do you have any Japanese cooking techniques, not just ingredients, but techniques that uh, you adopted? Uh, again, the furikake is a technique that we certainly have adopted and used Mm -hmm. uh, in the restaurant. Um, I'd say uh, some of the other techniques that we've adopted are, are, I mean, we talked about dashi, Mm -hmm. making dashi, Um, uh, curing fish, you know, handling how you handle seafood. Mm. Uh, The Japanese have obviously a very rich tradition and how to process and handle seafood. And generally speaking, um, uh, we often use the Japanese approach when it comes to handling fish. I, I love the, you know, classic Scandinavian uh, approach as well and and sometimes we go that route but more often than not we use the Japanese approach to curing fish mm. sugar salt you know vinegar um, etc sake mirin things like that mm-hmm. I love the way uh, the Japanese handle fish and uh, am not only a huge fan of going out and eating eating sushi or, or cured fish or raw fish but but using those techniques in our restaurant and mm-hmm. and, and you I mean, again, that's sort of how we've handled fish uh, mm. ever since we came across some of these right. approaches. Because they, they have a long time not being able to eat meat, so they have to come up with something really nice and good ways to um, enjoy fish. Yeah, and I just think their approach, the way they honor fish, the way they respect fish, the way they cut fish, the way they think about fish, is 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 something that uh, we wanted to adopt and has been very uh, – we've had a lot of luck with and, and have, have hopefully come up with great results and will continue to do so in the future. Mm, okay. And I heard uh, you've been to Japan. So when and uh, when did you go and what did you see? Any inspiration? Let, let's see. I went to Japan about, I think it was about five years ago. Okay. Um, and we spent several days in Sakai, Sakai City. Oh, Sakai, uh, famous for knife making. Knife making, which is exactly what we we're doing. We went to Forge and mm. watched a man make knives. Um we're fortunate enough to, to have a knife from that knife maker. Mm, I heard that there are only 50 traditional handmade knife makers. Yeah, I mean, it's, right now, so. it's, I don't think that's it's, – it's a dying art, unfortunately. Mm. Um, uh, particularly if you're left-handed like me, it's, <laughs> it's an even more die, faster dying art. Um, get, left-handed knives are hard to come by, but uh, they, they, they are wonderful. And from there, we went to Kyoto for a night and then Tokyo for a couple of days. Mm. Um, and – you know, it was a wonderful, wonderful tour of, of three great cities. I, I wish I had been there longer, but it was mm. a quick trip. So what was uh, any, you know, 
What was the like, inspiration? Anything you you found something different, interesting? I mean, certainly going to the fish market. The fish market was amazing. It was incredible. But the knife, the knives. You know, seeing the the, the going and seeing that. You know, meeting the guy, seeing them how the, how they take a, a piece of steel and, and turn it into a knife, and then working with a sharpener and, and and having you know the fact that there's one guy that makes a knife and a different guy that sharpens the knife is mm. just just incredible. And 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 that was was really interesting in going and 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 really having a deeper respect. I love Japanese knives, and and getting to see the the whole process was wonderful. Um, and then going and and you know obviously the food we ate some amazing food while we were there. The inspiration, mm. the food inspirations are always sort of a constant. Right, but again, you know, kind of uh, Japanese food is in common with your style, which you kind of learn from John George, maybe minimum intensified flavors. I think. Uh, again, I I take great. I've, I feel very fortunate to have been there only once. I'd love to go back, mm. um, but I really enjoyed the uh, the food that I had, the people that I met, uh, and, and just seeing their approach to food, the style, the way they they handle the products. Um, it was was really very very fascinating. Okay, so I hope you get a chance, another chance to go there sometime. I would love to go back at, at right. any time. Okay. Well, um, thank you for joining us today, Wiley. So good luck with the new restaurant. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be here. Well, please keep, keep us posted and come back. Of course we will. Thank you. So, um, the listeners, if you have any questions or comments uh, about the show, please contact us at heritageradionetwork.org. By the way, we just launched a beautiful new website, so please visit our page. And Japan Eats is live at 3 p.m. on Mondays and always available at heritageradionetwork.org, iTunes, and Stitcher Podcasts. So, um, well, today's show was made possible by Santori, and our engineer was uh, Malakai Linden. And thank you for listening. I'll see you next week. Thanks for listening to this program on heritageradionetwork.org. You can find all of our archive programs on our website or as podcasts in the iTunes store by searching Heritage Radio Network. You can like us on Facebook and follow us on Twitter at Heritage underscore radio. You can email us questions anytime at info at heritageradionetwork.org. Heritage Radio Network is a 501c3 nonprofit. To donate and become a member, visit our website today. Thanks for listening. 